If you turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 is, is where I'm going to be today. Uh, I'll, I'll jump around a little bit on the back end, but for today, I want us to pick up on the third part of four in a series um, on shame that we're calling Erasing Shame. And so this is the third of four. Uh, Pastor Kai did last week, and, and I did two weeks before that, and, and where I was two weeks ago was, was in Genesis 1 and 2 and into 3, and I'm going to pick up where I left off, but, but, but before we get into Genesis 3, verses 7 through 13, um, I want to give us a little bit of a recap of the last two weeks. If you haven't heard the sermons because you were out one of the last two weeks, they're on our website. I would encourage you to listen to that because this builds off those two things, but here's a little bit of a recap by way of that. Before I get into this, let me pray for our time though. So Father, we come to you now and, and we just put our hearts before you. So right now, brothers and sisters, just in your own heart, in your own way, put your heart before the Lord. Just confess your need for him to move in your life. Confess it right now. Confess your weakness, your inability to change your own life, your inability to change your own circumstances, your inability to measure up to the bar that our culture set, the standard that our own hearts put on us, put your heart before the Lord and ask him to minister in power. So Father, as we put our hearts under your word, we have declared your praises through song. And now we come and sit under your word and we ask God that you would use your word through the power of your spirit to minister to hearts in this room. Do what only you can do through the power of your word, God. So we, we've confessed with our mouths and our hearts here that we, we've just opened ourselves to you, God. And so we simply do that as an expression, a simple step of faith, hoping and, and, and asking, Lord, that you would meet with us where, where those who come in here are in a great spot. They feel strong. They feel confident in who they are or whether someone comes into this room and they feel low, they feel defeated, they feel less than. Lord, we all are equally in need of you moving in our lives. So Spirit, Holy Spirit, have your way in this time. Anything, God, that would hinder a move of your spirit in Jesus' name, would you send it away that we might dwell in unity under the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the name above all names who's been given all authority. And so we want to glorify you, Christ. So be glorified and minister in our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so by way of recap, over the last two weeks, this is the third part of four, let me give three definitions. These are definitions that I used two weeks ago. Pastor Kai used a couple definitions as well uh, in his sermon last week on cleansing. These will be on your screen just by way of recap quickly. This first one is from a research expert. Her, her name is actually Brene Brown. Um, uh, Pastor Kai quoted her on a couple things. She's a secularist. She didn't love Jesus, um, and, and yet she has some profound things to say about shame, but I'm gonna show you her definition about shame. It says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love. So uh, pretty spot on from what I've seen in pastoral ministry. Pretty spot on from what I've seen in counseling ministry. Here's a second one. This is from an Old Testament scholar who has studied Old Testament shame, the honor-shame culture that we see in the Old Testament. He says, shame is the sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. 
We know there is something wrong with us, but we cannot admit it or identify it. This is where I left off two weeks ago, that as a result of the fall, there is this nagging, panging in your soul that desires more. It wants more. And so I think I use the analogy of Christmas presents, that everyone in this room was given a shiny Christmas present along the way that's now in a landfill somewhere. And when you got it, you loved it, but you wanted more. Your soul pangs for more. That, this is a part of mankind. And then the third is from a biblical counselor. Um, he actually also has his PhD in neuropsychology. This is his definition. Shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable, am unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. It leaves you feeling exposed and humiliated. And I used a little word picture to describe shame as being on the outside looking in. And that's really what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 versus Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything. He places Adam and Eve in the garden with perfect provision, perfect provision of protection. And they're dwelling perfectly in communion with the creator of the universe. Can you imagine what that was like? There was no want in them. There was no nagging in them for more. They perfectly dwelled in unity with the creator of the universe and then sin enters the world and they are kicked out of the garden and they can't do anything to get back in. In their own strength, there is nothing that they can do to get back into that place of favor and unity and communion and fellowship with God. And not only that, The image of God that he created them is fractured as well, and so that reflection of God's glory and honor and dignity that's imprinted on them to be reflected into creation, they no longer have that. So then they're left feeling the impact of shame, longing for that dignity and honor that had been taken from them as a result of sin. Let me read this. So due to the ongoing effects of the fall, we are tempted to believe Our sin and shame are not covered by Christ. This is for brothers and sisters, every one of you in this room. And I pray by God's grace, by the end of this sermon, that we all have a better understanding of how shame impacts us on a daily level and how we as Christ followers are called to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over to rid of us that disgrace that Christ has covered on the cross. This lie believed creates gaps in our heart that seek to fill the honor, the dignity, and glory of Christ with other things. We talked about Romans 1, that they exchanged the glory of God for the glory of creation. And I said this two weeks ago, mankind by himself has no glory. (laughs) You know why? Because we were created to reflect God's glory. And yet the lie of Satan is that we can find glory in creation and we seek out those things of glory to rid of us disgrace. So had some phenomenal conversations over the last couple years, uh, the couple weeks, um, just with, with people that, that the Lord's working shame out in their hearts. Um, but before we get into God's word, here's what I want you to see. The people that are sharing their stories about shame, that God's unearthing deep pits of shame inside their souls, he's drawing it out into his good graces, out of his love, into the light where it's met with grace and truth and they're finding healing and bondage is being eradicated through the power of Jesus Christ. I've also had some troubling conversations with members of the church over the last couple weeks. I'm not gonna out anyone, don't worry. That was supposed to be funny because I get out some people. (laughs) 
where there's some people where as we've talked about shame, they don't feel like, no, shame doesn't hit me. I don't deal with shame. I'm good. My, my daddy didn't punch me when I was a kid. I'm good. I, I don't have any shameful things that happen to me that leave a scar, leave a mark. I don't, shame's not something that I deal with and I would beg to differ based off what we're gonna see in God's word today. So if you have your Bible, turn into Genesis three. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will get that to you. But this is right where we're gonna pick up that shame has entered. They realize that they are naked and ashamed, whereas in, at the end of chapter two in verse 25, the, the, the crown jewel of God's creation, mankind is naked and unashamed. We're about to see something drastically different. Pick it up in verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself, he said, this is God speaking, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So what we're gonna see, the first point today, is that shame has a compounding nature to it. And it's right here in the text, and I want you to see it. So first point, that shame in its compounding nature, it's different, the, the word naked in the Hebrew is different in chapter three versus what we see in 2.25. 2.25 of Genesis says, and the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There was no shame. There was no vulnerability, there was no exposure feeling, there was no feeling like eyes are on you. They just dwelt perfectly in unity with God, shared in his fellowship, reflected his glory, and enjoyed just the goodness of the Lord. Yet it says they were naked and unashamed. Well, it's interesting because once sin enters the world, in Genesis chapter three, this, the same word that we, we would use as naked is different in the Hebrew. And, and here's why that's significant that you see this repeated, you see it in verse seven, you see it in verse 10, you see it in verse 11. Um, the way that, that Genesis is written by Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is incredibly poetic. It's beautifully written. And, and so the way that it's being repeated repetitively, he's showing through the power of the Holy Spirit, inspired word of God, that this shame, this nakedness, this fear, this compromised feeling, it's compounding. It's getting worse. That shame introduced because of sin doesn't get better. It doesn't go away. And you see it in just a few verses, the compounding nature of shame. That their eyes were opened, they were naked, and you see this compounding nature of nakedness. So this, this um, compromise, this shame-filled, this weight, this fear, this exposed feeling, it magnifies, it multiplies, it gets heavier. So um, yesterday I did some teaching at a church in Durham. It's a harvest church there. And I was, we taught for three hours on a subject with all their small group leaders. And I, I used this totally innocent analogy that was kind of an in-house joke. 
I had, there's no way for me to know that this would have been an in-house joke with their church. And I share it not even as a joke, just in passing. The whole room erupts, and I'm the only one not laughing. I could feel my face go red. I mean, and they kept laughing. That's the compounding nature of shame. The longer they laughed, the more red and embarrassed I felt. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm what they call pasty, so I get red pretty easy. So I'm sure I glowed in that room. I'm like, hey, y'all, y'all want to fill me in? And it felt like it went on for, for honestly, like 10 or 15 minutes. And it was probably in reality just one or two minutes. But the compounding nature of shame, it's like sitting in that room and everyone's laughing at you and they laugh and they laugh and they laugh and they laugh and you can't do anything to get out from underneath it. You think anybody likes that? I know yesterday I sure didn't. If I could have faked it and act like I got the joke, I, I would have thought back and done that. I did not like that position that I was in. So that's, this is where you're gonna see a couple things collide. Because the compounding nature of shame, as that weight, as that fear, as that embarrassment, as that shame mounts on us, do you know that that weight was never meant to be carried by mankind? That he didn't create us to carry that. So when sin entered the world, so with it the weight and shame, and guess what, brothers and sisters? Your shoulders and my shoulders, we can't carry it. Can't carry it. Can't carry it, weren't designed to carry it, and it does horrible things to us. It torques us. It bends us. It distorts us. I think Pastor Kai said last week, and I really thought it was great, he said, silence is the sound of shame. There is a deafening silence that is building here in this compounding nature of shame. And here's where we're gonna go today. Shame doesn't heal without the gospel. It only gets worse. So in the West, we're in a bit of a danger because the West, you know what we typically do to deal with shame? Put it in a box, lock the box, throw the key, bury the box. Do you know it just gets worse? According to Genesis 3, it doesn't simply go away and be silent. <laughs> We need something deeper to change that reality. Second point today, shame turns us inward. Shame turns us inward. So we talked about up to this point the last couple weeks, shame is the opposite of God's intended design, that, that we were created as image bearers. It's the Imago Dei, that out of the glory and radiance and majesty of God, out of the overflow of his goodness amongst the Godhead, he creates mankind and we are created in his image. It's unbelievably intimate because everything that God's done to create up to that point has been let there be, let there be. When he creates man mankind, he says, let us, it's, very intimate, meaning people are unique and that we're created in the image of God to reflect his glory and radiance, his magnificence, his majesty, his dignity. We reflect that from him to creation. But we talked about Romans 1 where it talks about we exchange the glory of God for the glory of self and the glory of creation. So instead of outward and upward in the image of God, worshiping him, reflecting his glory, we go incredibly horizontal and inward. And we'll see this as we break down Genesis 3. My brother-in-law is a football coach. Um, he's coached for, I mean, probably as long as I've pastored, so probably 12, 13 years. Um, and he had a lot of success in Texas. Uh, and Texas is the mecca 
for high school football. Can someone say idolatry? <laughs> like um, they have football stadiums for high school stu- students that are bigger than a lot of college stadiums. It's actually quite obscene, but it's fun to watch. I'll tell you, he had a lot of success in Texas. He went back to where I'm from, to the high school that I grew up in, and where I grew up in New Mexico. They have a powerhouse of a football program, have won tons of state championships, but they dropped off the map the last 13 years. They are terrible. The culture of winning is long gone. <laughs> so he steps into a beyond broken program two years ago. And it's interesting because as we've talked, is there's so many parallels between coaching and pastoring, so I enjoy talking to him. And, and I, I, had to, I had to touch base with him this week to make sure that I remembered what he said was correctly. But one of the things that he said when he came into this new program um, that, that he had inherited as the head coach where, where I grew up, he just so broken, the culture of losing was infested there, and, and it, there wasn't a good team environment. So what he did, one of the first things that he did, he was in, in a, the first conditioning and weightlifting session. And if you've ever been in a weight, uh, like a gym or, or some type of weight training facility, usually they have mirrors everywhere, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like mirrors on every wall. I mean, you can watch yourself work out on the ceiling if you want to. It's kind of, kind of ludicrous. And that's sure, sure enough, in the conditioning building, they had mirrors everywhere. And, and he watched this team of football players. It each had their own mirror working out just watching themselves swell up and they're, they're lifting weights and only looking at them. And he said, mirrors gotta go. You know why? Because football's a team game. And so to change that culture, he took all the mirrors out so that even in their conditioning, they were rooting each other on as one unit. This is what shame does, brothers and sisters. It turns us hopelessly inward. Where I was created to reflect his glory and love others, you know what I do now? I want the glory for me and I'll use you for my game. Shame does this. That means if you've ever used someone for selfish game, you know what was behind that? Shame. So what's made me concerned, and that's why I'm preaching this angle so hard, is like the people that were in, just that the Lord moved in the last two weeks drew out deep pits of shame. Just incredible emails, incredible conversations as, as to what the Lord was drawing out and what he was doing but troubled by so many people that said, yeah, I don't deal with shame. I'm like, you you do. If you've ever used someone for selfish game, shame is behind it. If you've ever used something to bring dignity and honor to your person, shame drives that. Is it skipping over anyone now? That we all, and, and what did we talk about two weeks ago? There's the judicial and there's the positional that sin and shame comes into the world and before a holy God who is just, we are sinners. We're guilty. And we're also marred. So I messed up and I am messed up. Shame covers both of those. And this is what Pastor Kai talked about last week, that only through the gospel can we be cleansed of our disgrace and our shame. So shame before holy God turned them inward instead of outward and upward, reflecting God's glory and honor. As a result, shame enslaves Adam and Eve to a self-absorbed, self-prescribed remedy to cover the exposure and dishonor while dignity, seeking dignity and honor elsewhere. And we're about to see it here in the rest of Genesis. This is the third point. 
How do we deal with shame apart from Christ? Well, Adam and Eve show us very quickly. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they were naked, and they, were, uh, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's your covering. <laughs> so if, if you've ever heard of the phrase fashion faux pas, this was the first one. <laughs> like they, it's like humiliation goes all over them. They look to the left and the right, fig leaves will do, and they invented the loincloth. And, and let's just be honest, that was a sad invention because none of you wear loincloths around, do you? Is that a fashion statement they're wearing around these days? Not even in Paris. <laughs> like it's not a go-to. It's always awkward when you see a dude at the beach with a, you know, like, dude, you need to put some shorts on, bro. Like that, whatever that is, stop. That's a loincloth. It just needs to stop. It doesn't work. It works to a degree, but it just doesn't do what it needs to do fully. It leaves us feeling lacking. So think of a person who uses success or achievement. Think of in the terms of business, relationship status, to cover fears and insecurities. Do you know why people draw those things into cover? Shame. If you've ever used something, to bring some sense of dignity. You know what was behind that? Shame. Anybody find value in the work that they do? Nothing wrong, this isn't a loaded question. Let's just raise some hands. Anybody found value in a hard day's work? Got some lazy people in here, come on. Hard day's work, feel some value from it? Totally. You ever use that to esteem yourself? You know what's behind that? Shame. Right here. <laughs> they feel the shame and they draw in to cover, um, a friend of mine, um, he became a friend years and years ago. I ended up counseling him for a season. He was at our church where I pastored. He was kind of popular, you know, uh, just uh, amongst the pastors because this guy, if you've ever heard of CrossFit, um, CrossFit is this type of working out. It's incredibly difficult. I used to do CrossFit. I know you can't tell, but I used to do CrossFit. I had to stop because it's so difficult. It like totally breaks your body down. Like CrossFit is workout on steroids, but people who don't take steroids. I mean, this, these guys are incredibly athletic. These gals, I mean, they just can do some incredible things, um, push their body to the limit, and it's, and it's a competition. They, they have all kinds of competitions. He was a champion of CrossFit, okay? <laughs> Like, he, he's, at the, he's at the apex. He's, he's the high, as high as you can get. And this guy, he was good looking. Everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. I mean, obviously, he's in great shape. And he's just so disciplined in every area of his life. Disciplined in his eating, disciplined in his sleeping, obviously disciplined in his workouts. And so, honest question, just probably because I idolized him a bit in an unhealthy way, I just asked him one day, hoping to glean from him, man, how do you do it? He says, do what? Just stay so disciplined. I'm, I'm enamored with this guy, okay? And I ask him, and, and, he, and it's a throwaway question. <laughs> I'm not trying to search his heart out by any means. And he answers this. He says this, well, over the years as I've trained to become disciplined, I've used phrases that were said about me to prove people wrong. Pastor light goes on, ding. Why don't you tell me about that? Like, what, what, what words? I mean, I just like all of a sudden was like, okay, tune in. What words? So my dad, growing up, he was a hard man, very disciplined man, military guy. He used to tell me, you'll never amount to anything. You're a waste of time. He said that to me over and over and over growing up. So I just, when I need to go work out, I just rehearse those words in my head over and over. You'd be amazed at the adrenaline it gives you. Do you hear it? 
hear what he's doing? The shame of his father's words, he uses him to build something better for himself to cover his shame. They're fig leaves. Do you see it? A couple years later, series of unfortunate events for this brother. The girl he was dating that he wanted to marry, planning on marrying, she leaves him. A series of events around his CrossFit training, he couldn't compete anymore. Everything he'd worked so hard for was gone. <laughs> and he was in one of the lowest places he could ever remember. And you know who found him there? Jesus found him there. <laughs> and Jesus saved him in that low place. And I remember because when he got back into working out and his, his body was able to, to get back into CrossFit, it's like, it's like he had never participated in CrossFit before because he realized, I used to use it for this, and that seems silly to me now. Do you know why? Because his dignity was found in Christ. He didn't need it anymore. And so it actually changed so many things about how he saw life. All of his efforts, all of his endeavors were set towards that pursuit because he needed it to cover disgrace. Christ saves him, brings him honor, brings him dignity, covers his shame, and he sees the things he formerly used to cover, and he sees them for what they are. Fig leaves. This is what we do. We have to go easy on Adam and Eve because it's like, oh, that's laughable. A fig leaf, really? Think of the fig leaves you use that I use to cover, to draw dignity in, to cover that nakedness, that shame that we feel. I have a feeling this is hitting more people in the room than just the people who've been abused because we all cover. Second thing, verse eight. So they're already covering themselves with figs to make loincloths, verse eight. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the, of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So this is the second thing that we do to deal with our shame apart from Christ. We hide. So they've covered themselves with fig leaves. They hear the sound of the Lord. And it's the covering they've got. Guess what? It's not enough. <laughs> you see the compounding nature? It, it worked for a bit. And can we just be honest? Some of the things that we draw in like, I find value and meaning as a father, as a husband. <laughs> and I don't think that that's wrong in and of itself. But when I begin to use that status, my identity becomes those things. I now need them to cover me in such a way and bring a source of dignity and honor in such a way that they can't deliver on. And so if they fail me, then I search somewhere else to draw another covering. And if that fails me, I hide to avoid the exposure that I feel from what's abandoned me that once covered me and brought me dignity. It compounds on itself. So they hear the sound of the Lord, these fig leaves for covering, they're not enough, so they go to the deepest part of the garden, to the thicket. They go deep into the bush, so to speak. That's how y'all say it up here, the bush. We call it a forest where I'm from. <laughs> they go deep into the forest, they go deep into the garden because the covering that they've prescribed, the self-remedy, the covering that they've come up with is not working to the degree that they need it to work. A um, friend of mine, um, he's a pastor. Um, he's okay with me sharing the story. I've known him for years. Great guy, good brother, just gifted from the Lord. He leads worship. 
And um, he, growing up, he just really struggled making friends. Um, and, he, and he wasn't like, he wasn't even, I, and I hate to say this because it kind of like probably shames some people. He wasn't even an awkward dude. He just, he was born into a class with a couple key people that kind of just controlled the popular crowd. You, you ever, if, if you don't know who that person is, you're probably that person. Like, and, and he never could get into the inner circle, never could. He couldn't get into the circle outside the inner circle. And his grade school years were filled with always being on the outside. He struggled to make friends. There were different seasons of pretty significant ridicule from some of the other kids because you know kids can be mean they just mean and, and just ridicule that he dealt with always feeling like he was on the outside so as he grew up he went through a bit of a growth spurt it's funny when you go through high school and you get big and you're bigger than all the bullies they stop ridiculing you so much but he was still so insecure and fearful inside and this is how he would say it he learned how to escape intense threatening or volatile situations using sarcasm Humor, avoidance, to blend in, and avoided, avoid unwanted attention. Anybody else do that? Thank you, brother. Anybody ever use humor or sarcasm to deflect? Now, does that mean sarcasm's sinful? I'm not, it's not what I'm saying. I think it can be. I think in, in this case, when you use it to cover or hide or deflect something that Christ perfectly covers in our shame, and it becomes what psychologists would call is a coping mechanism, it becomes absolutely sinful. You know what drives that? Shame. So it's not that people have a sarcasm problem and need to be nicer. No, they have a shame problem and need to be covered by Christ so they no longer need to deflect with sarcasm and humor. Do you see it? You see why shame and getting to the roots of shame and letting the gospel cover over shame is so crucial. John Calvin says it this way. I love Calvin. He just, the way that he understands the, the, the Bible and, and doctrine has just has influenced me greatly. Here's what he says about covering and hiding. I'm just gonna read it because he says it better than I ever could. He says, was it to keep, for, he, says, he says this, for what purpose? Again, covering and shame. Uh, covering and hiding. For what purpose? Was it to keep God at a distance as by an invincible barrier? Their sense of evil was confused and combined with dullness as is often the case. All of us smile at these follies. Like I think we would, we, he, what he's saying is you would see Adam and Eve grabbing a fig leaf and we'd kind of chuckle at them. We'd be like, oh, those poor guys, what idiots. <laughs> All of us smile at the folly since certainly it was ridiculous to place such covering before God's eyes. All the while, we are infected with the same disease. Indeed, we tremble and are covered with shame at the first pangs of consciousness. But self-indulgence soon steals in and induces us to resort to vain trifles as if it were easy to delude God. And this is my big fear with shame, and it's why I think people most can't, a lot of people can't see the implications of shame in their life daily. It's because the things that they've drawn in to cover their shame actually work. It doesn't work. You know why? Because what we draw into cover cannot deal with our disgrace before a holy God. At best, the things we draw into cover make us feel better about ourselves, 
So that positional shame, we don't feel it as much because we, I'm pretty good, I feel okay, and I've got this going for me, and I just keep, keep avoiding this, don't want to pay attention to that, so that's negative, we don't want to focus on the negative, I've got this going, and I'm going to focus on this, but it, before a holy God, in no way do those coverings bring us in right standing before the king of the universe who is holy, and we are not. And then, I think this one's probably, I think these are all dangerous, but the ones that we're about to see, um, blame, pick it up in verse 12. Actually, 11. He said, God speaking to Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. You see him blame? Not just blame once. The woman that you gave to me. Ownership. Remember what Pastor Kai preached last week? This was huge. This was important. This woman who's unclean with a bleeding disorder, she steps out and risks everything to touch the hem of Christ's garment. She breaches the potential for more shame to be put on her because of her faith. And, and, and one of the big things that was important about last week was that that faith is necessary to step out and deal with the shame. There has been opportunity after opportunity, now opportunity for Adam and Eve to step into the light. We've sinned. We did what you said not to do, God. We've sinned. They don't do that, though. They cover, they hide, now they're blaming. I just have to wonder, and this is conjecture, it's not in the scriptures. I just have to wonder though, if at the first notice of their nakedness, if they had stepped out, God, what would have been different for us? Because the games we play, it's, it's like we don't see it till way over here when we've lost everything. Do you know when I most often see people in my counseling office, when they've lost everything, and yet shame was a part every step of the way? And I just have to wonder, if, if Adam and Eve had been like that woman from last week, the, the, the unclean woman, and just stepped out and said, we did it, we sinned, what would be different for us? You, you, you wanna know how to eradicate shame? Step into the light. Step into the light and under Christ's goodness. But to bury it, to sidestep it, to try to cover it with self-remedies, to try to control it, it catches up with us. And, and here's a side note, and I don't say this to like, I just need, to, I need you to hear this because only you and the Lord can work this out, what I'm about to say, because I don't know that this is gonna hit everyone in the room, um, but if, if your life is categorized by blaming, if you're a blamer, if, if it's always somebody else's fault, can I just tell you, that's the far end of the self-remedy of shame. It's covering, it's hiding. When you get to the point where you're always blaming and it's never your fault, do you know how fragile you are? One negative word against you is an indictment on the character that you need to bring your own dignity. It means you're not teachable. It means you won't submit. It means you won't come under the graces of the Lord, which is where life and healing and the covering our shame is had. 
Quit blaming. And I know bad things have happened to people in this room. And I know that we've done some horrific things that heap shame on us. Anytime the accuser brings shame against you, anytime you do something that reminds you of how depraved you actually are, did you know that the gospel speaks to all those things in an ongoing way, that the gospel doesn't just save you? We preach that to ourselves daily because that shame wants to find a sticking place over and over. I like to think of shame that's undealt with like fresh Velcro. You get some new Velcro shoes, and, and I, I don't wear Velcro anymore. I probably have to do it again when I'm 70 and can't tie my shoes again. But when I was a kid, I loved Velcro shoes. It, just, it was the coolest thing to me. And fresh Velcro, man, it's, you got to really work to pry it off. But as we preach the gospel to ourselves, that same shame that used to stick and stay, the gospel, it ruins that adhesiveness. And so the Velcro, it doesn't stick. It, it doesn't stay. Which is why we have to go back to the gospel over and over and over again so that those lies don't stick. Because if you're in Christ, anything that you've done, anything that you do, anything that you've been a part of, any shame you've been born into is canceled out in the name of Jesus through his shed blood, amen? Amen. This is what we have as sons and daughters. Here's the fallout. You'll see this on the screen. The fallout of our remedies to deal with shame, covering, hiding, and blaming. First, compound, the compounding nature of this shame of, of shame draws us inward. So as shame increases, as fear increases, so the remedies to deal with the compounding shame increase. Second, covering and hiding leads and fosters greater self-preserving efforts. So the efforts that I draw in to cover, the things that I do, think, think of my buddy who did CrossFit, like those things that he used worked for him. He formed an entire identity based off fuel from his father's words to cover his shame. And when he lost it all, he was a shell of a man. And he would tell you that his pride, because of his remedies working, was so staunch and so thick, it only the grace of the Lord could penetrate his self-ruled heart. That our own coverings leads to pride. Third, the self-ruled heart you see the fears of exposure, which leads to coveting honor and dignity. Nobody likes to feel exposed. We quickly find the nearest covering. And as that covering works for us, our covetous heart begins to covet for other things. Where do you think idolatry comes from? Idolatry comes from shame. Do you know that? That when I draw in a remedy that's a false gospel to bring dignity and honor and covering to my soul, that which only Christ can bring, and it provides a sense of covering for me, I give my affections to it. I give myself over to it, and then it becomes an idol of the heart. Shame leads to inwardness, which grows pride, which leads to false remedies, which leads to idolatry, which is to worship something other than God. And God describes himself in scripture as a jealous God. Not jealous like you and I are jealous. Like we get jealous and we'll like choke someone, (laughs) we'll choke the life out of them. We get jealous and we steal stuff from people. God's jealousy, the the only image I can come up with is like the, the, the jealousy I have for my kids' affection. Like when I come home from work after a long day and they run up and hug me, golly, that's like, fills you up. Makes a bad day really good, really quick. Then there's those days when they're off doing stuff and they don't run and hug me and I'm kind of like, hey, hey, dad's home. 
jealous for their affection. The worship that God's put in you to terminate on him perfectly, when that worship terminates on creation, he's jealous for that affection to be drawn to him. You know why? Because he loves you. (laughs) And he knows that worship in the creation only leads to more brokenness and hurt and shame. I want to show you in scripture. Go to John 4. And we're kind of landing the plane. But John 4, real quickly. This is... um, one of my favorite stories in scripture. And I just feel like it's so revealing and so telling of the heart of mankind. I'm just gonna quickly run through it so you can see some context. This is the Jesus and the woman of Samaria often referred to in church circles as the woman at the well. So pick it up in verse three. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. This is Jesus and his disciples. So they're leaving Galilee to, to, get, to, um, to, to get to Judea. And, and, and Samar- um, like Samaria is in between the two, okay? And so Jews and Samaritans were antagonists. They didn't like each other very much. And Jews saw Samaritans as unclean. And so for you to be a Jew, to walk through Samaria was a big no-no. So you would take the long way. If you happen to be in a hurry, then you could just shoot right through, but you better not eat their food. You better buy it yourself so that it wouldn't be unclean. All these goofy religious laws. And so that's the dynamic. But Jesus and the disciples, they go right through. <laughs> they go right through Samaria. So he came to a town, right? So, so he came to a town of, of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob has given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from, from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is tired. Like he's dog tired, sends the disciples into town to get some food, and he is sitting there. It's about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. So Jesus is already there. This woman comes. Give me a drink, Jesus says. So here's a couple things that are odd about this that are unbelievably telling about what's going on here. This woman is there at the noonday hour and she's alone. Two things that are very uncommon. Women came to fetch the water early in the morning when it was cool or late in the evening when it was cool. So it's odd that she's there at noon. It says something about her. And it's even more odd that she's alone, which nearly puts the nail in her coffin on the shame and the reason why she was there. We're going to find out later why she's there. She's there to avoid the cultural shame that's on her and the personal uncleanliness that she knows she's walked in based off her life habits and circumstances. And Jesus, which again is uncommon, speaks to this woman give me a drink. Here's what the woman says. Go to verse nine. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? So here's what she does. And she begins this theme, and I'm not going to go into all of it, but what she does is she begins to try to sidestep all of Jesus' advances. And these advances are really, he's coming after her heart. You see that on the back end of the story. And every time she puts him that, hey, you're a man, I'm a woman, uh, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, she brings up all of these little deflections to try to sidestep and, and not have to deal, deal with the reality that she knows what she knows about herself and she knows that everyone in the community knows what she knows about herself. So there's a good chance this man knows what she knows that everybody else knows about herself. That's a tongue twister. I can't believe I got it out. She doesn't want to be squared up on. Because her worst fear is that this guy knows somebody that knows somebody that I've slept with. 
I don't want to square up with this guy. She sidesteps, she avoids, she covers, she's hiding, and Jesus keeps pressing in. And he basically brings two things to her. He brings who he is. I'm Christ, I'm Jesus. And he calls her to eternal life, that which only he can bring. And that life that he's talking about, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Life comes through the Spirit and I can give it to you. He's offering her life. And she even plays a game on the back end where she, as Samaritans, they would have seen coming a different Messiah than the Jews. And so the Jews are looking for one Messiah. The Samaritans are looking for a different kind of Messiah. So she even tries to bring that religious argument against him. And Jesus comes right to that truth. And he says, no, I am. In her brokenness, in her shame, a woman who's been with multiple partners and the man she's with now is not her husband. This is a woman of ill refute. That's why she's there at noon by herself. Shame. Jesus pushes right through her shame to her heart and he calls her to himself. You know what he's calling her to do? Just step out. Don't sidestep. Quit avoiding. Step right into my graces. That's what he's calling her to. He calls her into himself. So brothers and sisters, I just want you to bow your head and close your eyes. I've got some questions that I want you to wrestle with. And this is gonna be difficult because I don't think these are easy questions to answer. I don't think that they're questions that we prefer to even consider. Here's the first question. Just in your own heart, in your own heart before the Lord, what have or are you most likely to draw in for a sense of honor and dignity? Just think of the things in your life. Think of the things that bring great value or dignity or worth to your heart. Those things most likely in and of themselves aren't wrong, but if you've drawn them in as covering to bring dignity, to bring honor, this could be an academic pursuit, it could be some type of business. It could be a recognition from a certain person. It could be a relationship. What have you drawn in for a sense of honor and dignity? If this thing has or does become a source of refuge and meaning up and above Christ Jesus, then it has idolatry implications in your heart. The call to us, brother and sister, is to repent and forsake this idol. Only Christ covers our shame. We have no dignity and honor. You know what Romans says? Romans says, none is righteous, not one. Like, apart from Christ, all I am is a mess. We're a mess. That no covering can bring that honor. No covering can cleanse that shame. It's only Christ Father, forgive us where we've drawn in false coverings. Father, forgive us where we have brought in things to secure our hearts, to bring meaning, to cover our shame. It's you, Jesus, only you. So we repent. We lay down our idols. Right now, brothers, sisters, lay it down. 
You'll probably have to lay it down a thousand times this side of heaven. But don't embrace it. Lay it down and run to Christ. Another question, just in your own heart. When you feel anxious, compromised, or vulnerable, what are you most likely to retreat to or take refuge in? When you feel naked, when you feel exposed, what do you try to control? You know what's behind that? Shame. If what you run to is not Christ, these are self-ruled efforts, self-remedies to cover and protect that which only Christ can cover and protect. So Lord, you, you have to help us with these things. Please, Father. Because we are so prone in a place of compromise. No one likes it. We don't like it. We don't like feeling exposed. We don't like feeling a deficit. We don't like feeling less than, and we quickly draw something in. Forgive us, oh God, where we have not called on your name, Jesus. Help us to be like that woman, the unclean woman that we talked about last week who just, she sacrificed everything. She took that step, that potential shaming step, and she touched you, Jesus. Help us to take those steps so that our shame is erased through your grace. Forgive us our self-remedies, our pride. Forgive us our coverings that we draw in up and above you, Jesus. Your grace is enough. Your favor is enough. You restore dignity and honor and our inheritance, O oh God, through Christ Jesus, and that's enough. So we return to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.